This is East Lansing Insider, brought to you by ELI on Impact 89FM. In this show, we break down all of the news and happenings in the East Lansing community. And now, today's East Lansing Insider. Hello and welcome to another episode of the East Lansing Insider, a news podcast brought to you by East Lansing Info and 89 Impact FM. My name is Andrew Graham. I'm joined today with Heather Brothers and Jack Timothy Harrison. We are the three of us reporters for East Lansing Info. Heather, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty good. Jack, how you doing? Doing well. Great to join both of you. Awesome. So today we are going to discuss, I guess broadly, this can all be kept under the umbrella of policing, but more specifically, we're going to be discussing the first meeting and function a little bit of background of the city of East Lansing's new police oversight commission. And then later on, we'll get into a little bit more about the fallout aftermath impact of the post game celebrations following Michigan state's win over Michigan on October 30th. So to start, we're going to get in with the police oversight commission and Heather, that is your department. First meeting was Monday, November 8th. What happened? So it was actually a pretty interesting first meeting. They had to obviously, as a new commission, go over logistical kind of things first, electing a chair, a vice chair, going over rules and procedures. Uh, So they actually elected Eric Williams as chair, and he was on the study committee for an independent police oversight commission. So very familiar with this area. And Kath Edsel as vice chair. So once they got those kind of uh, logistical things out of the way, they started really delving into debates about the role of the commission, what independent from the police means, what transparency looks like, and things got interesting quick. So I guess touch on the first point about what does, I guess, what does independent or second point, excuse me, independent from the police. I know that's a something that you covered in your report that's up on East Lansing Info. What is the, I guess, what's the sort of tension there? What was discussed? What was debated about police presence at the meetings or police interaction with the committee being, or commission being independent from the police, getting information from the police? How did that start to play out, I suppose? Well, the first thing that came up was whether or not they should formally invite a representative from ELPD to attend meetings. Which, I mean, these meetings are open, so anyone can come and sit in the audience if they want. Um, That was brought up, is there's really no way to prevent people from coming. Uh, But (laughs) but the debate was over whether it was like a formal invitation. If they should have someone from the police department there, you know, at every meeting uh, to answer questions, um, to give the police perspective. So that kind of launched them into uh, a debate about the role of the police. And, you know, most people seem to be on board with having the police there sometimes and for certain agenda items. And others, like Kath Edsel, voiced her opinion pretty strongly that, you know, people might be intimidated if the police were there, right? And, like, does that mean they're not that independent if they're discussing, you know, uh, use of force and complaints and things like that with the police kind of, you know, looming over them? So uh, they got into a, a fairly heated debate and there was a lot of nuance and people did present, you know, positives of having the police there, right? They can answer questions immediately. Uh, they can clarify things that don't quite make sense. 
Uh, and then obviously the negatives, you know, like what if that does impact their work? If, you know, people aren't willing to speak frankly right. because the police are there. So, I mean, they also that talked about- That is a tricky the- one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that really is a tricky one. Sorry, we keep talking over each other. Go ahead. Yeah, there's like a lag. Um, they also talked a lot about the website, which- was interesting. Um, you know, if it's so Shelly Newman, who is the city staff liaison said, you know, it's easy for the city to just kind of give them their own independent page, but have it be in like the template of the city that, so they don't have to pay like a new provider to construct a site from scratch. Uh, but then there was the question, is that independent or is that too reliant, like too close to the city? There's a lot of debate about that. And I mean, it was it was interesting. And I think that they kind of decided, well, like for now, to save money, to save labor, let's just have the template uh, that would give um, you know information on how to contact the Oversight Commission. So it's not linked to the police, but it is an arm of the city, which obviously so is the commission. So, um, right. yeah, there's a lot of debate on that. That was curious to me about the independence from the police, I understand. And I guess that makes kind of obvious sense to me that they want, if you're going to be doing oversight of some group, you need to be independent of that group. Mm-hmm. The independence from the city is something that does fascinate me because I know, as you mentioned, they're obviously it's a city commission. It's their powers derived from the city. I believe the city um, code of ordinances at this point. And yes, it's, they all, I mean, there's a certain inability to separate themselves from the city. It would seem right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they, there was even concern that at the bottom of the webpage, it would uh, give the, the city hall as like an address. And so they got into the weeds a bit on this, in my opinion. Um, but I mean, I think they have important questions because I think they're really trying to stick to the spirit of what the study committee wanted. Right. And then right. we have two members that were on the study committee on this commission now. So they were asked often, you know, like what was what was meant by this? You know, what were you guys thinking when you, you uh, wrote this down? Um, so I think it's it's uh, good for the commission that they have this kind of connection with this past year of work on this topic. Right. And I have this in our, our podcast rundown, Google Talk. Further with the city independence or so, I remember being at the city council meeting where council approved the appointments to the committee commission. Mm-hmm. And Mayor Jesse Gregg at the time said, something about how they want to keep city council should keep a closer eye or pay more attention to or or relative to other boards and commissions be more apprised and aware of what's happening with the police oversight commission because mm-hmm. council is ultimately the sort of executive of the city and in charge of the police at the end of the day yes how do you see that playing out i i guess that's that seems complex to me if there's also a clear desire on the commission to be independent of any of those voices? Well, uh, last night at the meeting, uh, both Ron Bacon and Dana Watson were in attendance. And um, they said that potentially they will both continue to act as liaison to the commission, depending on how council plays out, you know, when they have to kind of change ranks here tomorrow or, you know, tonight on our time, but, you know, a few days ago, I guess when this airs. (laughs) So they but they both said like they both want to be the liaison. So I think it's going to play out. It seems like there would be a little bit more council oversight in terms of people attending. And Ron Bacon was also the liaison to the study committee. So he was right. there for all of that stuff too and is familiar 
Uh, and they both seem passionate about the Oversight Commission as well. Well, right. And I don't, it's it's all very complex because it also seems that there would be value to the Oversight Commission being able to work sort of in concert or efficiently with counsel at some level if, if they're going to be at a point where they're recommending disciplinary things or something like that. I, I have no idea what they're going to end up functionally doing, but I can see also on the other end of things, aside from the independence, that there being some value to having that clear pathway and connection to counsel. And mm-hmm. it, it seems like it's, I'm, I'm very, very curious to, to see how this plays out. And I will continue to read your, your reporting on it. Is there, is there anything about the meeting last night? Oh, the use of force reports was interesting. I was reading your your story, and that was an interesting point of contention. That was kind of the first oversight they did, I suppose. If you yes, <laughs> really it's true, think about and it. uh, they didn't even get into the content really of the reports. That they're saving that for next meeting because they were more. Uh, you know, they wanted to discuss the format and how, uh, in some ways, it doesn't follow the ordinance, uh, ordinance fifteen oh three, because they need the the names of the police officers involved in these use of force incidents and use of force is anytime they included uh when officers had to put down wounded deer because that counts as use of force right because they had to uh, take their weapons out so use of force doesn't necessarily always indicate violence i guess uh, against people so yeah but how the reports are given to them there were no names of the officers and they wanted some other things too, like the ages of the people involved, you know, was a social worker present on site, things like that, that were absent uh, in the report they want uh, corrected for November and corrected for October. So they didn't really get into the content. They're going to do that next time. But yeah, they were pretty in a unanimous agreement on um, needing the officer's names, right. which makes sense, right? If they want to see patterns of behavior, like if an officer is involved in a bunch of these incidents, then maybe that should be looked into by the commission. Right. Well, and it also seems like the nature of this, this is almost coming back to how the data is getting entered, if not just how it's getting presented to the study committee of, I think they're, or not the study committee, Freudian slip, (laughs) the study committee or the oversight commission and sort of how the data is getting aggregated and collected by ELPD when an incident happens, because it uh, it seems right. like if there was a uniform, if it's just, hey, you there's you unholstered your gun or X, Y, and Z, end a shift, you fill out Y form with required boxes, and that gets entered into a database, and then you just go, you know, date to date kind of Correct. thing. Correct, but they don't have a database that does that, so that this is how the data gets presented to council and to the Oversight Commission right now, because it takes a lot of work, I guess, for them to put it together because it's manual. So the commission did suggest, you know, maybe streamlining the process of this reporting with the checked boxes, as you mentioned, uh, so that it's easier to compile to see kind of long term patterns uh, and who the suspects are and also who the officers are uh, committing uses of force. Right. You mentioned at the top. Uh, Eric Williams was elected the chair, and Kath uh, Edsel, I believe, was the co-chair. Fine, vice chair, yeah, vice chair. Who else is on the commission? If you can just take me through that quickly, there's we have a story on East Lansing info where we introduce the the uh, commissioners. But if you could just sort of give me a one sentence sort of profession and who each of them are. Well, I mean, in general, um, I think we have uh, an interesting group, right? We have two social workers, a clinical psychologist, a lot of people in education or have participated in uh, volunteer work. 
have worked with like at-risk youth, kids that have gone through like uh, the juvenile prison system, things like that. So a lot of people have ex- experience either directly relating to policing or tangentially relating to policing. So, I mean, I can go through each person if you want, or... Uh, well, you actually gave a pretty good explanation there without <laughs> sparing the uh, the attendance call. So uh, I think that is fascinating to me, though, how I, one of the one of the commissioners is a middle school teacher, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just it's fascinating to me the, the the different people who are drawn to this and and interested and wanting to perform this task. Um, that that's a little fascinating to me, just personally. Yeah, I so, think it's a, a curious group. We'll see how the dynamics continue to play out through uh, different meetings. Gotcha. When's the next one? Uh, December 13th. Gotcha. I'm sure we will be uh, talking about that more then. Kind of move on now to everyone's favorite East Lansing topic du jour, couch burning. Jack Timothy Harrison is here with us. He's been sitting silently in the corner, so to speak, while <laughs> Heather and I talked about the Oversight Commission. Um, but Jack wrote a story for us, kind of diving into the student perspective on what happened. And Jack, I just kind of want to pass the mic to you and just let you dive in a little bit and go through your reporting, what you what you learned and kind of you're, you're an MSU student. What's uh, what's kind of the, the word on the street? Yeah, absolutely. And um, just to give you some background on how I did this story, I went around uh, to, to cafeterias on campus um, and talked with several different students. And from my conversations, I had some students that heard about what happened but did not go. I had some students that saw everything on social media. And then I had some students that even experienced uh, couch burnings and went to Cedar Village. And it was just interesting hearing the mix of opinions. Across the board, every student I talked to made it clear they would never participate in any of these actions. But the feedback uh, was different from among the students. I had several students talk about um, that they thought it was interesting, that they just thought it was a part of MSU culture and didn't really have an issue with it. I had some other students say, it's inevitable. It really doesn't impact me. I don't care that much. And I also had some students, too, that really took a hard stance against everything that happened. They questioned why MSU students partake in these acts. I even had another student tell me that even with COVID right now, the mass gathering of people in Cedar Village um, was a concern. So it was just really interesting just to talk to fellow students uh, to hear their perspectives, Andrew. Well, it's not surprising, I guess, to me that it, it runs the gamut, but it's kind of hard to, I guess, people see people in the streets and just kind of think that's the default. I guess what was, it seems to me, I read the the story that's on East Lansing Info, it, it seems pretty clear that everyone was on the same page that flipping the cars went too far and that kind of stuff. But what fascinated me more than anything was the the kind of students who came and sort of it's it's that it's the the couch burning and lighting furniture on fire and stuff is sort of the the tradition and it's it's what we're known for and we're like we're almost supposed to do it that kind of fascinated me and i'm kind of curious how maybe how you've as a student seen that that culture or or heard it or in just in the process of reporting this story but that that point is that something that you've kind of seen before or heard before or was that something that you'd heard for the first time reporting oh, this story oh. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And so just to do some quick history, too, 
I know in 1999, a, a car was actually burned uh, to the ground in Cedar Village. And then sort of in between that time period, um, I believe it was 2013 after Michigan State um, beat Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship. Uh, there were some of the biggest blazes, you know, I've seen through photos, um, but there wasn't, you know, that car burning. And I think what, what happened, you know, last weekend is that you, right, you had several cars uh, that were flipped. And then you also had um, just the amount of, of, you know, separate couch burnings themselves spread out campus, right, re- required um, a lot of attention. And so talking to the students, um, they were all, they all basically said it went too far. And for me, this was really the first time I had really, you know, seen and heard about all of this. I've talked to some other students. They said that when their parents went here, they experienced the couch burning. So I guess it was a little bit of a, a wake up uh, to MSU's culture for me. Um, and it was just really disappointing too, just to see as, as a fellow student, just to see, you know, your peers a- engaging in these in these acts and i do want to talk more about the car because i saw a student from the university of michigan came up to east lansing for the weekend and he was going through social media videos and he saw that one of the cars that was damaged was his this information oh, is no from, yes so this information is from his gofundme page so i haven't you know talked to the student um but he said in his his bio you know for the gofundme page that it was just gut-wrenching uh to see uh, this this car was passed down through his family, um, and now he's raised over eight thousand dollars. And I was just looking through the comments, and it was just interesting to see fellow Spartans, you know, donating, um, you know, to him because you know they they felt sympathetic. Um, so it, it was really just a wake up call for me. Um, and I really am hoping the university in the, in the future will do more, you know, to prevent some of this stuff. Right. Heather, you are a, I mistakenly labeled you a non-student in our document earlier, even though you were a grad student. Yeah, I'm grad kind students. of a de- defunct You're a myth. You're not student. Real. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm finishing my dissertation in year nine. So I've been around for some time now. Um, but I remember when I graduated high school in 2004, I had a lot of friends go to MSU for undergrad and I would come and visit them. And eat, like that, the kind of tension between the rivalry of between U of M and MSU was at that time still, you know, a big deal. And the culture of kind of raucous <laughs> burnings and like parties at that during that weekend was even a big deal then. And I walked around campus uh, during the current game between like 10 a.m. and 12, dropping off a friend who was going to the football game. So I was like, well, let's go and walk around because usually I avoid uh, those kind of things. Most grad students, I feel like, just are annoyed when campus gets full. Um, and before the game, I mean, the atmosphere, like, there were a lot of people. A lot of people were drinking and having fun, but there was no... And we walked through, like, downtown East Lansing, too, and by the frat houses, and everyone just seemed to be kind of having a good time. I, there was no violence. Nothing was on fire yet. Um, so it was kind of just surprising, like afterward, <laughs> after the game, it all, you know, went to hell. I listened to some national college football stuff, and a lot of the writers were confused. It's like, we get it after a loss, but after a win is confusing. Right. And the tradition thing is kind of, fat. The, the parental tradition thing that Jack brought up is kind of interesting to me, because I know my parents, or my dad at least, who has lived here basically his whole life, going back to 1966, 
and Cedar Village was a problem even before the 90s to some extent, and it really changed then, as far as I'm aware. But this is not necessarily a new issue. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of surprising. And I think Jack made the point that MSU probably needs to take some action, or you're, you said you're hopeful MSU takes some action. On that front, just today, today's Tuesday, November 9th, East Lansing Mayor Jesse Gregg posted on Facebook a letter, I believe, that she had sent via email to MSU President Dr. Sam Stanley and a few other higher-ups at MSU. And it basically calls on MSU to do something consequential or, or more significant than just denouncing what happened to try and prevent it from happening again. And she shared the letter publicly because apparently, according to her, she had not gotten pretty much any real response from MSU, just a lot of go talk to this person and then, yeah, we read it and go read this press release we sent out, which to her was not satisfactory. And so she posted this letter. And basically the crux of it is at the end is we've, quote, we have seen that fines and charges have little impact on students who feel the invulnerability of youth. We need to see clear action from the university communicating the severity of these actions in the form of suspensions and expulsions. We need to see active bystandership from the students who find these actions repugnant, end quote, for that portion. So I find that to be kind of the crux of it, that the city of East Lansing for a decent amount of time here has been pretty committed and as committed as they can be and as dedicated as many resources as they can to solving this problem and minimizing it. And that they just can't while also doing all of the other things that a government needs to do. I know part of the problem on that Saturday with all the fires after the game was that it blocks the streets. And when you have 75,000 people trying to leave a football stadium, a large majority of them in cars, you need all the streets to be open so traffic can move. It becomes a safety issue. And the city has, at this point, I think, gotten to the point where they're expending pretty much as many resources as they can when it comes to this time and that there's just a feeling in the city that MSU has to do something. So my question is not, do you guys agree with that? But what would work? Do you think I will give it to you first, Jack, as you are a current undergrad, but would expulsions, would potential suspensions be effective? What else do you think MSU could use to try and, or do to try and curb this behavior? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, And I first wanted to say that a few days after everything happened last Saturday, the East Lansing Police Department put out a press release and, you know, they had almost 350 calls. Um, And I, you know, I think it raises some questions that, right, if if someone's having a very severe emergency and police are having to attend to these fires, I mean, they even said fire people had to go into uh, areas without police um, presence. And so in my article, I spoke um, with, with the university spokesperson, um, and she said that MSU has collaborated with many different partners um, in terms of messaging for behaviors and everything. Um, and I think it is a great question, right? How do we prevent more of this in the future? Is it from the city side? Is it bringing more police and everything? But um, I think to your question, I think it really falls more 
um, on the university, right? Because, you know, these are my, my fellow students. And so, you know, I don't know all the answers to that. I am, you know, involved in our student government and ASMSU. Um, and I believe some type of statement or some action is going to come through that. Um, and I think it's just important for, you know, students to see other students, you know, taking a stand against what's happening to, to have some change. And for the university, I think to outline some more strict repercussions for if people engage in these behaviors. Right. Heather, do the grad student, can, should they deputize the grad students or something? What's, oh, what's the move? No, the grad students are um, overburdened already. Yeah. Yes. So absolutely not. I honestly have no idea what it is. I, I do agree yeah. that MSU obviously needs to have a response, right? They can't, I think the mayor called the, what she was told an, an anemic response, their like press release. And yes, that was the, I think that was, yeah. The, the and I mean, I agree. I think they, instead of like, I guess, condemning the actions of the students, it's like, okay, yes, they're condemned. Um, but <laughs> what is the, you know, the university needs to put something in place to prevent this from happening. Right. Because people right. could have gotten hurt. Uh, obviously um, it's not great that people's cars were burned and couches were burned and things like that, but people could get hurt. And then if, you know, uh, emergency services can't get to them, right? Like, this is going to eventually lead to tragedy, right? Right. If, if nothing's done. So they have to do something. I'm not sure what that is. Well, I, <laughs> but something. Right. Well, and I, I think it's too, if it's the, the feeling for MSU taking responsibility is to some extent of, you know, we're the city, we've done what we can do. Yes, these people are residents here, but MSU, these people aren't here if you're not in existence. That's just the reality of it. Yeah. And, I, I think you guys are kind of on the nose of it's not, there's not an evidently clear solution, but it does seem evidently clear that some of it needs to come from MSU or some more of it needs to come from MSU well, than just, already has. I just thought of something. So MSU was involved in doing a restorative justice program for COVID for students that were like violating COVID Correct. policies. Yeah. So, I mean, potentially something like that, a partnership with the city for the students that were caught doing you know, vandalizing things or putting other people in danger, potentially restorative justice could be an option. That could be smart. Yeah. And I just, I was just going to add to that, as we were saying, I, I think it really falls on MSU to create more of a partnership uh, with the city in terms of how to deal with everything. And what's also interesting too, is that a student I spoke with that went and saw the car flipping in Cedar Village um, she said there was, you know, already in her mind, in her experience, heavy police presence there. And, you know, for this to still happen, right, it, I think that's more evidence for why it falls on uh, the university to take some more action. Well, it seems perhaps some some measure of prevention. I don't know what that could be. But, yeah, I mean, if, if, if a thousand people want to go out in a parking lot and form a mob and flip a car over you're going to need twice as many police officers or tear gas to make that stop realistically mm -hmm. as unfortunate as that is. And I think the city of East Lansing has wisely in a lot of ways moved on from that, but it does create this conundrum. Now we are pretty much out of time here. I want to once again, thank Jack and Heather for taking some time today. This is a, a lovely discussion on policing and oversight and couch burning in the city of East Lansing, which I'm sure will be frequent topics of discussion again. Any last words, guys? 
No, thanks for having me. Yeah, these are, I think, important topics to discuss. So um, I enjoy talking with both of you. Awesome. Once again, this is the East Lansing Insider brought to you by East Lansing Info and 89 Impact FM. Thank you for listening. East Lansing Insider is brought to you by ELI on Impact 89 FM. We are on the web at eastlansinginfo.news and impact89fm.org. Thanks for listening.